Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. Coming up on Sound Medicine, why kids need more than just aerobic exercise to be fit. We would do somersaults, we would climb ropes, we would do skill and strength-based activities. Plus, how a change in Medicare could help people with multiple chronic conditions. This is really recognizing that this is an essential part of good primary care. An older person with four or five chronic conditions might see eight to ten different doctors in the course of a year. When it might be okay for a doctor to Google a patient and when it's a bad idea. It may undermine the trust between the patient and their provider. And a new PBS documentary that just might make you feel hopeful about the healthcare system. Our patients are really asking for us to drop our equipment, put down our prescription pad, take off our stethoscope, and just listen. That's all coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, public radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. We begin this week with that famous quote from Albert Einstein, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. National guidelines recommend that kids and teens get 60 minutes of physical activity every day. Those guidelines have been around for a while, but they just don't seem to be working in the battle against childhood obesity. In fact, only one in four American kids gets the recommended amount of exercise. Dr. Gregory Meyer explored that problem in a recent paper for the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And he told me that now pediatricians and sports medicine experts are focusing less on the time kids put in and more on their activity. We've seen that that we've been looking at a a lot of adult-based recommendations and we've kind of let those spill down to our youth. And we've kind of gotten away from more of the gymnastics-based activities for kids in physical education. And now we're seeing more continuous-based and aerobic-based activities being recommended for kids, and it's just not effective. So we wanted to spur on some discussion about what many current guidelines keep reproducing, uh, saying that 60 minutes of physical activity is what we need every day for kids. Every guideline keeps pounding this home, but we're not hitting that mark, and we see our youth continuously getting more obese and, and less active. So we've got to do something different. Well, what sorts of activities do kids tend to do in PE at school these days? I mean, does do schools even offer physical education time anymore? That's an important question, and that's, that's the root of part of where we think we can actually reach a lot of these and make a difference. As you know, there's probably only one mechanism where we can actually reach a majority of our youth, and that's our education system. It's the infrastructure is there, and then we have these these people that are they're educated and taught how to teach children to move and play, they are physical education teachers. So their schooling has put them in the right position to reach these kids, and they have the background. And then we continue to take away that opportunity with huts that we use physical education as uh, where we need to make a budget balance. We cut a teacher here. We cut PE there. And PE is continually being the lowest common denominator where we think we can cut. What kind of activities they do in PE? Well, that can vary based on the structure, and, and uh, we have a lot of great physical education instructors, but we're seeing some trends where we're just starting to do more aerobic-based uh, movements. And again, part of this can be uh, driven by the litigious nature of our society where we, we might be uh, less uh, likely to get them involved in risky movements or climbing a rope where they might fall. And we've seen some of this in, in schoolyards and in, where some schools are now banning running at recess or stopping kids from having balls at recess due to fear of being sued or liability. So we see some of these trends pushing us towards safer, non-strength building activities. And many schools now often just have once a week where kids are involved in PE, and that's just not enough. 
Well, now let's get back to the article that you co-authored in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. In it, you say focusing merely on time, the 60 minutes a day, doesn't necessarily provide young people with all the development they could be getting from exercise. But let's start with motor skills. What are these before we start talking about them? So, so motor skills are skills that are needed to support more complex movements. We call them some basic fundamental movement skills. So, for example, a squat maneuver. If you take a picture of a child, they can squat, uh, put their butt nearly to the floor perfectly with great technique as, as they're a child. But then if you take a 13-year-old adolescent and you tell the average adolescent to, to do a squat maneuver, it'll look very poor. They've lost the skills. And part of that's because their proprioception and, and their, their motor control or their ability to control movement is severely disrupted by their rapid growing bones that are growing faster than their, their muscles. So the, the, the neuromuscular system is going through haywire. What we have to do is give them both motor skills, which are examples of, of exit movements that are basic to every movement, the so squatting, lunging, the things that, that are required that can build upon throwing a ball, hitting a ball, catching a ball, skills that are more complex, but that children are going to need as they develop into trying to move on to more complex sports or activities that they'll enjoy for a lifetime. I'm speaking with Dr. Gregory Meyer about how to make sure kids get enough physical activity every day. Dr. Meyer is the Director of Research in the Division of Sports Medicine at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. So if you reach adulthood without good motor skills, what are we setting ourselves up for? There's a a good analogy to to kind of drive that home. Would you rather teach a five-year-old child a foreign language or would you rather teach a 40-year-old a new language? It's just very difficult to teach those new skills. But if you start early, there's a very high level of neuroplasticity, which means that the the body is, is in the brain especially is open to adapt and respond to new stimuli. So as a child, if we get them involved in these, these movement skills and more importantly, strength building skills. So they have to build that basal level of strength that'll support the movement that they want to do as they get older. What we can do is if we teach them when they're young, we can continue to build upon them as they grow. And we call this a training age. How many years a child's been involved in these types of training activities or, or supportive skill-based activities? And then as they are an adolescent, we can do more complex and more demanding tasks that they'll benefit from. The whole idea is starting early to give them those skills when it's not so difficult to manage. Teaching an adolescent a jumping and landing skill, for example, is very difficult because, as I mentioned, their neuromuscular system is going haywire. They have these increased demands. They've just gotten much taller. They've gotten much more mass, so they're bigger. And their center of mass is harder to control. So all these things are going haywire on them, yet we're trying to teach them this high-load demanding task when they haven't been given those skills before. And part of this is going back to physical education when we were younger and then back in the 1950s was very gymnastic-based and strength-based. We would do somersaults and teach us these basic movements. We would climb ropes. We would do skill and strength-based activities. And now we're seeing a trend that might be more aerobic-based or or gameplay without instruction. And I think that's something we could also look at as a potential mechanism to make change. So if you could have your wishes come true, what sort of activities would you really be having these kids do? We would have our very youngest uh, children participating in doing somersaults and doing squats and lunging. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Avery Fagenbaum, has uh, gotten into schools and taken the first 10 minutes of physical education, and he takes balloons. So he, ha- he keeps it fun, keeps it interesting, but he takes uh, balloons and makes the, the, the children hold balloons and do movements as directed. So it's basically teaching them control of their bodies and during strength maneuvers. And he does that in the first 10 minutes of PE, and then they go on and do their, their regular courses. And he found significant increases in, in all of their motor skills, but their power-based, and also what was really interesting, their aerobic-based activities improved as well. So we made them better movements, and they were more efficient after doing these types of training programs. So I think those are the type of activities we want to start young, but as they mature and they develop, we want to make them more complex, and then they go into more skill-based activities that will lead to success in sports, and also 
exposing them to a variety of sports when they're young so that they can find the sports that they may have the most talent in. Okay, so that's for that sounds like good advice for parents, and that was my next question. I mean, some advice for parents maybe to, when they're young, let them explore a variety of sports and, and work on just their, like you said, motor skills or activity level. Anything else that they should be thinking of? That's a great idea, getting them involved in a variety of sports, because in PE is probably the only way they're going to get exposure to some of those diverse sports that may not be basketball, football, or soccer, where they might not have the opportunity to play and so they can get some exposure to tennis and other racket type sports that are also going to be lifetime sports that they might be able to play for a longer period beyond their school years and we've seen there's data that supports some of the olympian athletes they were multiple sports and specialized in their current sport very late in life so creating that robust system of neuromuscular control and, and movement skills and power skills and strength with multiple sports may be the best way to go. And we have data to suggest that young girls who specialize earlier tend to have more problems with knee pain during their adolescent years. So the idea was with that study is that having a variety of sports may take some of the stresses and, and reduce those risks of those overuse injuries that we hear about. Dr. Greg Meyer, thank you so much for talking with me on Sound Medicine. Thank you very much, Barbara. You have a great day, and I appreciate you having me. Dr. Gregory Meyer is the Director of Research in the Division of Sports Medicine at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your Sound Medicine stat is 24. People say, I'd give my right arm for this or that. But what would you give up for protection from Alzheimer's disease? Would the well-being of, say, your big toe be a reasonable trade-off? In a new study, researchers followed two groups of people for roughly five years, some with gout and some without. Gout is a particularly painful type of arthritis marked by shards of crystallized uric acid that build up in joints, often in the big toe. However, the discomfort of gout now could point to advantages later. The people with gout in this study were 24% less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than the people who didn't have it. The connection may be that uric acid's antioxidant effect protects the brain, or it could be related to genetics. But this is a very early study, so trying to get gout on purpose to lower your Alzheimer's risk is not recommended. That was the number 24, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up. A change in Medicare rules that our next guest actually calls pretty terrific. And later, a preview of a new PBS film about a change in the healthcare system that's happening right before our eyes. Our patients are really asking for us to drop our equipment, put down our prescription pad, take off our stethoscope, and just listen. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. The FDA approved a drug for inhaled anthrax from Emergent Biosolutions this week. The Department of Health and Human Services has already been stockpiling the drug to use in the event of an attack involving anthrax. The disease has been used as a weapon for almost 100 years, and experts still consider it to be one of the most likely agents to play a role in biological warfare. Actress and filmmaker Angelina Jolie-Pitt made headlines this week, announcing that she had her ovaries and fallopian tubes removed. She carries a genetic mutation, BRCA1, which greatly increases her risk of developing ovarian cancer. Health experts applauded the announcement, saying her decision to discuss her choice could encourage other women in similar situations to consider their own options. Air pollution isn't just bad for your lungs, it may also threaten your peace of mind. That's a finding from a study of 70,000 women in the U.S. 15% reported high symptoms of anxiety. Women with more exposure to fine particle air pollution had greater odds of anxiety. This type of pollution comes from sources including car exhaust and power plants. 
And another reason to have oatmeal for breakfast. Harvard researchers say older adults who eat more whole grains and products like bread and cereals may live longer than those whose diets contain little or no whole grain fiber. The study also found that fans of whole grains were less likely to eat red meat, smoke, and report being overweight. More factors to living a longer, healthier life. And finally, from Finland this week, a report found that kids whose parents smoked in the home were more likely to develop plaque in their carotid arteries as adults than children who were not exposed to secondhand smoke. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. Since January, Medicare has been paying clinicians for non-face-to-face care coordination for patients with two or more chronic illnesses. Dr. Louise Aronson is a professor of geriatrics at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. I asked her how the new rules will change how care is delivered. Well, it's actually pretty terrific. So a lot of primary care has to do with arranging services and dealing with medications and talking to patients and caregivers. And up until this point, we have really only been reimbursed for face-to-face interactions. So all kinds of other things that are known to be really good for good care of patients were not reimbursed, and people basically had to take it out of their own time. It's been one of the strains on primary care that there's so much work It isn't counted in the sort of fiscal sense. And so this is really recognizing that this is an essential part of good primary care uh, by adding a benefit that, that compensates physicians for it. Why might people with two or more chronic illnesses need this service? Well, as people become more chronically ill, and some people have two chronic illnesses and and don't need this. It depends a little bit on your definition of chronic illness and and the severity. They actually specify that it's not just having two chronic conditions, because some people have ones that are in great shape, but one's expected to last more than a year, but with risk of death, decompensation, or decreased function. So that means either a chronic illness that's progressing or, you know, known to be progressive or or causing increasing uh, functional, you know, has sort of reached a stage in its disease trajectory that it's causing more harm to the person. Uh, So some examples of that would include congestive heart failure, which as it gets worse, people are known to decompensate, to require hospitalization and to functionally decline. So it's, it's not necessarily every chronic illness, but it will cover people who have really, because of the way the system's been set up, not been given the kind of supports that are shown to help them. And again, heart failure is a good example of that when you look at the care management services that people like Michael Rich and others have done it's made a huge difference. And Dr. Aronson, give me an example of of how this would work. I'm trying to imagine somebody in the the primary care office coordinating care and what that would mean. Multiple phone calls? I'm I'm just not sure. Okay. Um, That's a great question. So there are actually many different ways it can look, but you might know that somebody isn't doing so well. And part of it You know, imagine if we stick with the heart failure example, since I've started that way, part of why they're eating what they're eating is because they could only walk as far as the corner store. And the corner store, with their income or what they can carry, they get foods that are loaded in salt. So then they eat salt and they decompensate and they end up back in the hospital. Well, so you might think, oh, this is a problem. I could get a meal delivery service. And then it turns out they've got other functional things and they're, they're getting socially isolated and they're scared to go out and walk. So maybe if they went to a day center, they would get more exercise and actually that would lead to not only the disease not getting worse, but potentially it getting better and them getting better on a variety of other metrics such as their arthritis or depression or a variety of other chronic diseases that often go with heart failure. So you would need to then coordinate with the meal service. You might need to get some care at home and deal with those caregivers and fill out paperwork. You might take some time uh, working with a social worker to figure out which adult day center it would be. Uh, Then you might coordinate with the nurse at the day center to say, hey, can you be following these vital signs and this patient's weight because if it goes up this much, I'm going to be concerned that we're on the verge of an exacerbation. And if you call me, I can then call you back, get paid for that, and we can intervene before this person ends up in the hospital and suffers more decompensation and more functional loss. 
And how popular is it already, and how popular do you expect it to become? Well, you know, it's pretty hard to say. I was, uh, I'm was i actually in New York, not in California now, and I was asking around, and it seemed that some people are starting to try it. A lot of systems are looking into how do we do this, so it comes with a variety of requirements about having an electronic health record and staff with 24 access to it and the coordination of transitions. There, there are just many ways you could implement it. So I think because it's only been around for you know less than two months, people are still figuring out how to do it and are trying out solutions. It's a little hard for me to tell at this point how popular it is. To the degree that prices drive things, you know, we're sort of transitioning from a fee-for-service sector, you know, healthcare society to a different one on the one hand. On the other hand, the new one is more cost conscious. So if this is a way of incentivizing people to do what seems to be better care, I'm hoping it will become popular and will also just be the first step towards more payment and system structures that support what we know leads to better care. Do we know implemented on this scale with lots of different ways of applying it that it will work and has it worked in every trial? No, but there's a lot of suggestive evidence that this is better care for people. And before providers can start charging Medicare for their service, their patients um, have to uh, agree to it, right? I mean, what questions do people need to ask their doctors before they say yes? Yeah, so so I think that could be a big stumbling block in, in other systems. So people might wonder, why do I need this? I felt like I was fine already, right? So you would have to explain, hey, you remember last year when this happened, or this is a new thing we're trying, and you know, you've been having a little more trouble in the last six months, and we think by putting you in here, we're going to be able to keep you in better shape and keep you out of the hospital. So is that really kind of the take-home message for seniors with multiple chronic illnesses who, who might be interested in the service, saying, hey, well, this is going to lead to better care? I think it really should lead to better care. I mean, it gives people all kinds of things that are really helpful, so access to community and social services that can help them remain in their homes and functioning well. Uh, One of the things that older adults fear most is ending up in a nursing home. And as their burden of chronic disease increases, often they have sort of functional and basic social challenges. And so if their physician or the the practice, um, because it's not just physicians, are incentivized to help them solve those problems so that they can remain where they want to live and functioning as well as they can given their ailments. That's a huge plus for patients. Well, Dr. Louise Aronson, thank you so much for talking with me on Sound Medicine. My pleasure. Dr. Louise Aronson is a professor of geriatrics at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School. The Centers for Disease Control says that one in four adults have two or more chronic conditions. My next guest is Dr. Chad Bolt. He's a healthcare consultant who specializes in older patients. He says the current system just isn't designed to handle so many patients with multiple illnesses. Our healthcare system, which in many ways is is excellent, is designed primarily to provide really good care for people who are basically healthy but who every once in a while get sick or injured. Uh, Unfortunately, the needs of our society as it's aging are changing, and those needs are becoming more and more for uh, high-quality management of people who are chronically ill, and many of those people are chronically ill with more than one condition. The older they get, the more conditions they acquire. So unfortunately, our healthcare system, which does a good job for what it was designed for, is uh, becoming more and more overwhelmed and um, not really able to handle very well the growing population of people that have multiple chronic conditions. And what types of problems arise for individuals and their doctors in these situations? I would think that the balancing, like you said, of multiple medications might be difficult. Uh, What else? Oh, just the uh, need to see multiple providers. Uh, For instance, a 
a, an older person with uh, four or five chronic conditions might see um, eight to ten different doctors in the course of a year. Might be uh, might might have uh, physical therapy and and a nurse, a home care. Might be in the hospital. Might have a short stay in a nursing home after a hospital, and then have home care. And, and it may be from different home care agencies. So the complexity of care is enormous and placing a huge burden on the patient and their family. On the provider side, it's very complex because many times if the person has uh, several doctors, each doctor is only aware of what he or she is doing for the patient and not aware of what the other doctors are doing. So unfortunately, sometimes... Um, one doctor's prescription actually interferes with the care of the patient's other conditions. Very complex on both the professional side and the patient's and family side. Yeah, well, talk to us about the guided care approach to treating people with multiple chronic diseases. Uh, did you help develop this? Yeah, a, a team that I led at Johns Hopkins developed this guided care model as, a, as an approach to dealing with people with multiple chronic conditions. And it's basically a nurse-centered intervention in, in which a special nurse um, who's, been, who's taken a course in how to do this um, works with the primary care physician and specialists in helping these people who have these complex needs. So the nurse assesses them and gets together a list of all of their medicines that, that she then shares with all of the, the healthcare providers, as well as all of their medical problems and, and sometimes non-medical problems as well. Uh, as a side note, many times the non-medical problems are at least as, as important to the outcomes as the medical problems. If, you know, if a person needs uh, special transportation because of uh, some physical disability or they need special advice from a dietitian or, or a person to help them with their uh, the social needs, like a social worker, uh, those needs are often at least as important as the medical needs. But in any case, the, the guided care approach uh, has a nurse who tries to um, put together a list of all of the person's needs and then uh, work with them and all their health care providers you know, over, over time, over months and years, to coordinate their care and to help the individual patients and families to cope with it, uh, encouraging them to manage their own Ill- illnesses and health to the greatest degree possible. So did you measure this? I mean, how well has it been proven to work? Well, yeah, we did a, a large study of it um, in, in uh, 14 different practices in the mid-Atlantic area. Half of the practices got a nurse, uh, the, the guided care nurse, that did just this activity. And the other half continued practice as they always had. These were primary care practices. And we followed them uh, for a couple of years and found that uh, the quality of care was decidedly better in the practices where uh, the the nurses were helping out. The patients were, as you could expect, highly satisfied uh, with the care that they got from these nurses. And the doctors whose practices these nurses joined uh, were very happy, too, with the help that they got and their ability to provide higher quality care for their patients who had these complex needs. So if a, if a um, medical office or a healthcare system doesn't have this set up, this guided care approach, is it possible for a busy doctor to really diagnose and track multiple problems in what we now know is a very brief and busy office visit? Well, no, that's exactly the problem yeah. and uh, that, that we face. The doctors um, are, are overwhelmed. Uh, they, they don't typically get extra time for very complicated patients. And so they're often, the office visit uh, for the patient is often no more than an opportunity to talk about one particular question or problem that they might be having and, and kind of putting all the other issues on the back burner. Um, and, and the doctor really is often locked into a 10 or 15-minute appointment schedule. So he or she just, just can't do much about it. So this guided care approach was designed to, um, by adding a nurse to the system, uh, helping to make the doctor's time with the patient much more efficient. Is it mostly older people in this situation, or are we seeing multiple diseases in younger people now? 
Well, it's mostly in older people because the, that people that just tend to acquire chronic conditions the older they get. But there are definitely some very important uh, group, smaller groups of patients who have multiple chronic uh, conditions and they're younger, um, such as people with HIV AIDS or people with uh, chronic kidney failure uh, and some other groups. But uh, it, it happens definitely, and the same challenges of even when a person isn't older. Looking to the future, do you see this guided care method becoming the the norm? It seems like as we're all, as baby boomers, we're getting older and uh, we all may well push the system into trying to really solve managing multiple illnesses. It's going to be a necessity. Um, as you pointed out in your intro, um, this group is not only unfortunate for the patients and the families, but it's costing the Medicare program enormous amounts of money. Um, as you said, 80% of Medicare spending is on people with four or more chronic conditions. So if we were able to come up with a model like guided care, or there's some other ones, that could actually make care more efficient and, and keep people out of the hospital, uh, then it could, it could actually be a cost saver as well. What we have to have in the future is the, a, a, an understanding of these relationships and a transfer of funds from the organizations that are potentially saving money, like Medicare or private insurance, to the practice so the practice can afford to have a nurse. Alternatively, under a much more radical scenario, uh, the, the practice, um, if, if, if it's being paid for, uh, as they say, pay for quality or pay for value, then they might be able to get more pay as a result of the better outcomes that patients report. But we're not there t- yet today. Well, Dr. Chad Bolt, thank you so much for talking with me on Cell Medicine. You're very welcome. Dr. Chad Bolt is a healthcare consultant and expert on managing multiple illnesses, especially in older people. In the past, he has spent time at Johns Hopkins Medical School and consulted with Medicare and Medicaid. It's time now for this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. And even though the weather is warmer now, there still might be a reason to drink two cups of hot chocolate every day. Jill Dittmeyer explains why. Researchers followed two groups of healthy adults in their mid-70s for a month. Each day, one group consumed two cups of regular hot cocoa, while another group drank two cups of hot cocoa enhanced with antioxidant flavanols. Flavanols are commonly found in different types of food sources, some of them nuts, some of them vegetables. That's Mark Underwood, a neuroscience researcher who has spent 20 years studying the brain. And the group that was participating that had the flavanols showed improvements in cognition in just about 30 days, and they also showed an increase in blood flow in their brain, both of which are pretty remarkable. Remarkable, says Underwood, because most people don't think they can improve their brain health. Other research shows that exercise and the increased blood flow from exercise can improve memory, and that's without any dietary changes. And then certainly some studies have shown just flavanols increase our memory, so it's sort of a one-two punch. The Harvard study followed older adults, but Underwood says age really doesn't play that big of a role. Your improvements are basically usually relative to where you started. So brain improvement for a 73-year-old might take them from one level to the next. Brain improvement at age 40 may take you from a different level to a different level. Underwood says making the effort is most important, and if that includes a cup or two of hot cocoa, all the better. People in their 40s and 50s will find it worthwhile to invest their time into these types of attitudes and behaviors because it's going to pay off in the years and dozens of years to come. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. 
Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. Here's another one of those questions that just didn't come up 20 years ago. When is it okay for a doctor to Google a patient? That's what Dr. Maria Baker considered in a recent paper. We invited her to explore that topic with us. Welcome to Sound Medicine. Thank you very much. You recently co-authored a paper that raises a very interesting question. When is it okay for a doctor to Google a patient? And now for many of us, even those who aren't journalists, I mean, learning more about people online has really become second nature. Why can it be a problem for doctors to look up their patients' names online? Our major concern about uh, healthcare providers Googling their patients is that it may undermine the trust between the patient and their provider. If the patient would learn that their provider sought other information other than which was shared during the appointment, they might question their motives for not asking them the information directly. So, you know, our greatest concern is that when healthcare providers consider seeking out other sources of information, that they consider really the intent of why they feel they need additional information, if at all possible, to try to gather that information directly by um, entering into a discussion with their patient. If they feel, however, that the patient would not be honest or forthcoming with information, and yet there's something that is compelling the provider to seek social media or Facebook to Google the patient, then I think you have to somewhat trust your gut. And in our paper, we outlined some of the situations in which we feel a provider may feel compelled. They would have some scenarios um, to, to think through. Okay. I want to get to those in just a second, but I was curious. You're, you're a genetic counselor. I mean, have you ever felt the temptation uh, to look up a patient's Facebook or LinkedIn profile? Yes, I have. Uh, and, you know, interestingly, I grew up in a time when uh, there wasn't the Internet. So it was not second nature for me to consider the Internet as a source to get information on my patients. But both of the patients that we reported on in our paper were patients that I had personally met with. And in the first case, uh, I felt that I had a duty to warn the patient of new information that we had learned, and yet all of her contact information was no longer current. And in the second case, I really had concerns for the patient's mental and physical well-being uh, if we followed through with her request. And uh, really, at the urging of a colleague, genetic counselor at another institution, went ahead and Googled the patient and learned some information that I then was in a quandary about what to do with it. What did you do with it? Well, um, I was on the ethics committee at our hospital at the time, and so I was fortunate to have a number of colleagues who were uh, very seasoned and experienced in working through some of the pros and cons of how to handle a situation that's wrought with some ethical dilemmas. And I sought their advice, and uh, we discussed the case. I actually presented at the ethics committee, and we talked it through until uh, I felt comfortable with the correct approach with that particular patient. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like two of the 10 situations that might warrant checking out somebody's uh, profile on Facebook or Googling the patient. What are some of the other situations where a doctor could go online um, and to protect a patient or to help a patient? Well, uh, interestingly, uh, this has been in the news quite a bit lately, and there are others that are writing on this topic as well. And shortly after we published our paper online, uh, there was another author who posed some other situations, which we also included in our paper. And that is, if you have reason to believe, for example, that a patient is going to cause harm to another or to themselves, really you have a moral and ethical duty to try to avoid that harm from occurring. And uh, in order to try to avoid that situation from occurring, if you need to seek out other sources of information, that certainly would be a compelling reason. 
to Google the patient. And and what are some of the other ones? Were there some of the situations well, where you really um, think it warrants? Many of the situations that we proposed really evolved out of the second case that I mentioned, uh, where we were concerned about the patient's physical and mental well-being. For example, uh, a patient whose story doesn't seem to be consistent with the medical records that we obtain. Um, a patient whose story seems to contradict what other family members provide, an urgency to their requests that doesn't make sense. For example, prophylactic surgery in most cases is not an urgent situation, as opposed to someone who has a, a diagnosis of cancer where you want their treatment to move forward as soon as possible. So, you know, those are some examples where we feel that it would be appropriate and that the benefits would outweigh any potential harm or impact that it might have on the patient's relationship with the provider. And Dr. Baker, can you explain or give me an example of what you might find by Googling them that would let you know that maybe they're abusing prescription drugs or they're, they're you know, they might not be telling the, the story that they're telling you in the office? Well, for example, over the past couple of years, I've surprisingly uh, heard a lot of reports of uh, individuals who are raising funds under the guise of having a cancer diagnosis, for example. Um, you know, there unfortunately are some individuals who are trying to take advantage of the goodwill of individuals to donate to different funds. And if you find online that this person is promoting that they have a cancer diagnosis and yet you as their primary care provider know that not to be true, you have a moral and ethical dilemma. Do you need to report that individual to the authorities if they're fraudulently raising funds? Another example would be if you meet with your health care provider and you develop a plan to adopt some healthier lifestyles and yet the provider maybe for some reason feels, hmm, I wonder how well that individual is going to do at stopping smoking. And so they search on the Internet, and they find that patient's Facebook account, and they see a recently dated picture showing that individual at a party smoking a cigarette. And the next time that patient comes in for an appointment, if the provider confronted the patient, you could see how the patient might be taken aback that they went in a sort of circuitous route to find out information about them rather than asking the patient directly. And how have professional medical societies weighed in on when it's appropriate for doctors to Google their patients? Well, there are a number of uh, professional medical societies that have developed guidelines regarding the use of social media. But up to this point in time, none of those guidelines specifically address the issue of patient-targeted Googling. When is it appropriate for a healthcare provider to Google their patient? And really, these two cases um, were the impetus for us to encourage professional medical societies to update their uh, professional guidelines. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that the younger doctors are really, this is going to be an evolving um, issue ethical issue. I'm, I think maybe what you're saying, like our age, that, you know, we didn't have this before uh, versus, right. you know, the, the, the other doctors. This is how they've grown up. My co-author, uh, Dr. Daniel George, has a keen interest in this topic of how medical students view uh, the use of social media in the practice of medicine, and he has uh, interviewed and surveyed a number of our medical students, and because they grew up using the Internet, it is so second nature to them that, unlike you and I, it's just a part of their normal daily lexicon and usage of technology. Do they feel like there's no ethics problem here? No, they actually do recognize that there mm -hmm. are some ethical quandaries in doing so, but we hope that by opening this discussion and incorporating these types of cases into our um, medical education curricula that when they do consider Googling a patient that it will be a considered approach, that they will consider why they're thinking of Googling the patient. If it's 
just out of pure curiosity, that's really not an appropriate reason to Google the patient. If, however, the patient actually encouraged the provider, oh, take a look at my uh, blog, you know, I want you to understand better where I'm coming from, or, you know, my thoughts and feelings, then that's a very appropriate reason for the provider to go and search their patient. So, you know, we hope that by bringing this out uh, in the open for discussion that, one, the professional guidelines will be updated, which will uh, serve to help the providers that are graduating today and those practicing. That way they won't be really navigating the Google blind spot in isolation. They'll have some professional guidance from their colleagues and from other uh, professionals. Dr. Baker, thank you so much for being a guest on our program. Thank you. Dr. Maria Baker is an associate professor of medicine at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center. We'll post a link to her paper at soundmedicine.org. And finally this week, a PBS documentary debuts in the next week about what it calls a quiet revolution, the transformation underway in medicine toward patient-centered care, which is changing how healthcare is being delivered. The film's director is David Grubin, the son of a general practitioner. David Grubin, welcome to Sound Medicine. It is a pleasure to talk with you. Good to be here. So you grew up in the 50s with a father who was a general practitioner. What did the practice of medicine, especially the doctor-patient relationship, look like in your household? Well, from the point of view of a little boy, uh, I saw uh, my father um, always, always out, always busy, always away. And what he was doing was he was with his patients. And he spent way too much time with them, uh, my mother would say. Uh, But they loved him. And... uh, as a boy, I looked at his black bag, which was to me uh, a mystery filled with you know, miraculous things. Uh, today, I realize he didn't really have much in that black bag, but what he did have was a connection to his patients, and that relationship to me seemed very, uh, you know, very moving. I'm speaking with filmmaker David Grubin about his new PBS documentary. Rx, the quiet revolution. Here's a clip. Our patients are really asking for us to drop our equipment, put down our prescription pad, take off our stethoscope, and just listen. For this film, I set out across the country to watch today's new breed of healthcare providers in action. A family practice in Maine tackling chronic illness and opioid addiction. I love these people here dearly. They saved my life. Okay. A rural health clinic in the Mississippi Delta, empowering patients to fight diabetes. With this program, I feel that I can get off the medications. And I'm, I'm still striving to get to the top. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there. A healthcare system owned and run by Native Alaskans. We didn't know how terrified we probably should be in attempting wholesale revision of a model that had been in place for 100 years. But I said to myself, well, we couldn't screw it up worse than it is. An alternative to nursing home care in San Francisco. I never am able to say to somebody, you're young again. That would be great. But I feel a privilege taking care of people who've made it to their 90s and 100s and help them in their final years live with dignity. All across America, healthcare professionals are transforming the way we receive our medical care and lowering the costs at the same time, putting the patient center stage. What I realized is that there is a revolution going on out there in in medicine, but we never hear about it. All over the country, there are doctors and nurses physician assistants, uh, nurse practitioners, who believe that it's important, what they call, it's important to put the patient at the center of their practice. That, that's what all this comes down to when they, when, when they talk about it, uh, called patient-centered care. 
it's, it's not something that, that gets to be on the front pages. Genetic advances get to be there. So it's, it's quiet, but it's happening everywhere. And I think of it as a revolution in the real meaning of that word. You know, it's revolving. You, you, you go, it, 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 my, what my father did is coming around again. It's not like we want to throw out all the great medical advances that we have today. God knows it's fabulous. But we're also bringing back, we're evolving back to that caring relationship, that, that personal relationship, that's what I saw out in the field. And to me, it's a, it's a very hopeful revolution. Before I let you go, I've got one last question for you. So you went, visited these wonderful places and you saw, you met these innovators and you put together this piece. But when you sat back and you finished it, did you feel more optimistic about the healthcare system in America? Or did you feel like, well, these programs are great, but this is just a tiny fraction of it. What I love doing about this program was the optimism and the hope that I found in the people that I was working with. You know, you can really get bummed out with the healthcare debate, with all the pessimism and the, 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 the hopelessness that's out there. And here you see people that are really making it work. I mean, imagine to be in a place in Alaska where there's 65,000 people with very, very patients, high, high patient satisfaction when they measure it. I mean, that makes you feel good. It makes you feel great. And it's the same with talking to these doctors, the humanity that they show, uh, the, 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 um, and the effort that they're putting in to making the healthcare system work. Um, as one of them said to me, uh, we have more possibilities to help people than ever before in history. We have these miracle drugs and great technologies our job now is to get it right, to deliver the care in a way that's going to work. And they're trying. It makes me feel good. David Grubin is the, a filmmaker, and he has a new PBS documentary, RX, The Quiet Revolution, coming out on PBS, and we're excited to watch it. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you. And that's it for this week's program. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf produces our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program, and he chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News with help from Andrea Moraskin. And I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.